All right, welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us today is Joshua Don. He's the executive director and founder at Astronova School. Josh, it is an honor and privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Josh, here on the podcast, we are interested in both the future of education and the future of technology. And of course, the synthesis of those two things. We're excited to have you on because from what we know of Astronova School, it seems like you guys are at the vanguard of both of those things, the future of ed and the future of tech. For our listeners, could you just give us a brief outline of what Astronova School is and how you became involved with it? Sure. <clears throat> um, so in 2014, I started at Astro School with Elon Musk uh, with the idea of serving the children of SpaceX. So that school for six years was mostly on the campus of uh, West Campus of SpaceX and served around, you know, 45 students that were predominantly the employees, uh, uh, children of the employees at the company. Sure. And uh, yeah, after like, you know, basically the pandemic happened, you know, Elon's kids graduated and it's like kind of like what's next. And we decided to spin off the school and call it Astronova School. Uh, same faculty and general ideas of Ad Astra, but trying to, you know, do things a little bit differently. Um, we were looking, of course, to return in person as, as all schools were this fall, but you know, we started online uh, and we just kind of have stayed online and, and we'll continue to stay online kind of past the pandemic. And I can talk kind of through all how that all happened, but really like for us, it was like, what kind of student experiences would be most meaningful? How do we design those experiences when we were in person and then now kind of translate into online? How can you create really memorable online experiences for kids, um, even as you're at somewhat of a disadvantage socially? So, um, so that's, you know, that's Astronova School. It's a small team. There's four of us that are full-time. Uh, now there are around 115 students that come. Some come five days a week. Some come just for a single day. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really been quite, quite an experiment. And there are some affiliated projects that go along with Astronova School. One of them is Conundrums, a partnership with Class Dojo, kind of releasing like short videos uh, for, you know, anyone that, that wants to see them. Uh, and, uh, and then Synthesis is a company actually that is a spinoff of a class that I run at, at, at Astronova that's kind of like multidisciplinary problem solving and having students like work through complex problems. That's really awesome. I, I've had the chance to see a few of the conundrum videos and they're, uh, they're delightful. They're very thought provoking. Uh, I'm looking forward to showing a few to my kids later. Um, talk to us about the role that conundrums play in the curriculum and the pedagogy of your school. Sure. Yeah. So synthesis, I know that I, I call the class to teach synthesis and that really just sort of covers honestly anything that I kind of can cook up for that week or, or that month. And, uh, you know, when I, I met the founder, Sam, at Class Dojo and we had a conversation around like, well, what kind of content for like younger students could Astronova potentially produce? And, you know, for me, it's not so much that like these are the right questions to ask kids. It's just sort of like maybe the right structure that people, wherever they are, wherever they're teaching in the world, can use a similar structure, which is basically posing like seemingly equivalent options to students. I just feel like as a kid, it was always like, you know, school uniforms or no school uniforms, or it was always these like binary things. It was always like under the guise of like, this is the persuasive writing unit. Right. And um, I just feel like developing student reasoning is just like so important and just putting them in a position to make a judgment and giving them these like options that are all like pretty good options, but they're you know usually flawed in some way. So the, you know, so Astronova like writes, produces um, 
and, and sort of like puts these videos together. And I do it with a team of students because like part of Astronova, like the idea at least is like that students are collaborators in designing content and sort of collaborators in the design of the school also. Sure. So, uh, so yeah, there are 14 videos, hopefully they're released on class dojo in, uh, in 2021. They're on our website and, uh, the feedback's been really positive so far and it's amazing how many, uh, how often there are disagreements within families around some of the options, uh, you know, and that's, and that's really healthy, right? It's that constructive disagreement that just doesn't tend to happen so often in schools. It's certainly lacking in our society right now. <laughs> Josh, yeah. you know, you're a fellow Teach for America alum like I am. And, you know, part of, of what drove us is, is this idea around uh, inequity and inequality in education. Do you see online school uh, having the opportunity to, mock, to democratize world-class education? Or do you see um, the disparity becoming uh, even widened even further because uh, of lack of access uh, to internet, et cetera? I think it probably gets worse before it gets better, but I think it will get better quickly is kind of the way that I've thought of it. I mean, certainly internet access is the thing that like must, you know, and, but you know, one, if someone is able to have, you know, that internet connection, they could be a student Astronova once we figure out the time zone piece. Right. Sure. So for us, you know, when thinking about what the future of, you know, so at Astro became Astronova, it's like we could be an independent school. We could like rent, you know, some space from like a religious organization. We could pair with an existing independent school. But at the end of the day, it becomes really insular. The, the financial model doesn't really work. You end up, you know, a lot of these independent schools in LA, like 80% of the families are full pay families. And you're talking about full pay at like $35,000, $45,000 a year. Like, and the fact that these are like 501, you know, these 501c3 taxes and status, like that's in my mind is also insane that this is like a public good in some way. Like, Sure. If 80% of the kids are full pay families, you were talking about the upper fraction of 1%. So for me, it's like, well, you know, what can we do in the meantime as sort of the access question, hopefully, like the more students have access, the more students know about Astronova, or at least teachers can see kind of what Astronova is trying to do and, you know, humbly share what we can share and things that are effective that can be used in schools can be used. But in the meantime, like try to just create content and share it and like, honestly, share everything that we, we design knowing that like we have incredible advantages that others do not have and like the very least we can do is like try to run more experiments and have an eye towards what could actually scale versus what is a product of resource which is more often like what you know independent schools do they build these you know bastions of <laughs> of privilege and they you know, beautiful campuses with you know beautifully manicured lawns and at the end of the day like pedagogically there's nothing that's that interesting frankly um so you know what you're, <laughs> you're, you're preaching to the choir, my friend. As Adam, a and I, <laughs> yeah. Adam and I have both worked in the independent school world, and we can both uh, attest to the truth of what you're saying. Um, one of the conversations on that note that we've had is that it seems as if there's a generational shift going on amongst parents, um, where you know you might find some of the older parents who still want those nicely manicured lawns, who still want those beautiful facilities that cost. X millions of dollars, um, whereas, you know, perhaps millennial parents or, or even as we start to transition to Generation Z parents are starting to ask the question like, hey, what's the uh, what's the return on my investment of this thirty five and forty thousand dollars a year? Uh, is it pedagogically a public school that's taking place in a super nice building? And so I'm wondering, um, as you 
enroll students in Astronova, are you seeing that it's mostly younger parents who are open to this idea of a world-class education online without the nicely manicured lawns, or, or is it a pretty good mix? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, it's like our original parents were employees at SpaceX at all levels of the company. You know, they were used to things, you know, changing really quickly. And as, as cool as it sounds to be at SpaceX, and it was extraordinarily cool in so many ways, like the facility itself, like we didn't have like, we had portable restrooms for the first school year of school there. So, you know, I think in that way, um, just from the outset, just not playing the, the high school admissions game, like we're a third through eighth grade school. We said from the very outset, like, you know, we'll try to form relationships with, with schools in the city. We know that a lot of our students will continue with public high schools. But at the end of the day, like, it's the type of people these children become. It's like they're, you know, efficacious thinkers. They are going to have these meaningful experiences. And whether or not, like, a high school admissions process recognizes that, like, we can't say. So I think from a very, very early point, we had the benefit of having SpaceX employees who largely get it. And then having families come in from the outside who were like looking for something totally different and we're not trying to reverse engineer kind of like the college admissions process through the high school admissions process and all the way down um but that's still that still looms and i understand the motivations behind it i mean there's a lot of fear around the future and you know if you, if you think you're getting your kid into stanford is going to sort of allay that fear in some way then you know, a lot of parents think they'll do whatever they can do to get the kid in but that's like not the story for most families in this country as we know it's like definitely the story for like a certain subset that acts like that's kind of the, the lived reality for most. And that's just not the case. Um, so, we, that, so we feel like, honestly, yeah. Yeah, no, no I think we, we are, we're under the same, we, we have drank from the same Kool-Aid in that, you know, we, we met at Vanderbilt. Right. Uh, I went to Brown undergrad and, and um, we realized that that model is quickly being disrupted and that, you know, <laughs> your ability to actually understand things is more important than the insurance policy that you're being sold in some of these independent schools. Right. Right. So, you know, so I wonder what are some of the things that you're finding uh, as you've kicked off to online, what are some of the things that you feel like that kids are missing from the in-person experience? There have to be some trade-offs, right? There are definitely trade-offs. Um, I'll just give you like an example. So, in a class that I teach called Synthesis, which is like, you know, you can imagine for all these years when we were at SpaceX, when people come to visit the school, they want to see something special because like people, you know, they're like everyone, you know, wants a new idea or like a new insight into how things can be done. And it always felt to me like the best way to do that myself was like to just design something that I knew was like really unique. So Synthesis became that class, the class that we would often, you know, that people would sit in when they would come to visit. And kind of the trick was I could host a Synthesis class and hold a meeting at the same time <clears throat> because I would design like an elaborate simulation or, you know, or it's like a game where students are working like over like eight or nine weeks. And all I need to do is sort of make sure that the auction takes place <clears throat> or make sure the moves are made at the beginning or the end of class. But in you know, the rest of the time, the students are like moving around the room, like figuring out like what deals are going to make, what their strategy is and putting it all together. So I miss that, right? I miss that hive of activity where students could buzz around like the room that are like they're negotiating deals. There's Insert always controversy. VR. Insert virtual reality. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right. So that I mean, and that I mean, that's that's another top topic. Yeah, that's a big topic too. And uh, I miss I miss that. And I miss like you know when you see there's a student you know like that you just need to check in you know and that that kills me when I just I can't 
I know that there's, there's, there are students that are like needing like more attention or just a, a deeper conversation or just a moment of like, hey, how you doing? And you're just kind of guessing online. It's harder to really get to that piece. Not to mention like those moments after class are always so important. And it's almost like the kids like, like Harry Potter, like they apparate in and they apparate out. And then I'm just left alone in my room. <laughs> and it's, uh, that still takes quite a bit getting you know, used to. And I think for us, like the strategic move to be fully online going forward was just about like, how do we, what it gives us the best platform to share these ideas? How do we not become like yet another insular independent school? Um, how can we like sort of push creativity in terms of student experience online? And that's felt to be like a, a better horizon than sort of like, yeah, like joining an independent school and losing creative control and then just becoming like a nice kind of, you know, a nice facet of their program that they would market on their website. Yeah. So that's why we did it. It doesn't mean it's perfect. And obviously we want to like, you know, get the kids in person together as much as possible, but you know, that's a, definitely a challenge. And we looked at Stanford OHS as a great example of how to do this. And they did it far, be you know, far before this is acceptable to do online schooling. Right. Right. So we looked at that as inspiration. We, we had one of our, um, I'm the head of school, the little school called Benedict Day School in Summerall, Mississippi. And we had uh, our first uh, Stanford OHS um, get accepted last year. We, we're K through eight. So we have a lot of similarities and instead of synthesis, we have a program called conceptual, which is, um, you know, again, rooted in this kind of constructivist uh, pedagogy and it's all in trying to create the why and understanding the why of learning and a lot of kind of higher order thinking and, and things like that. I think that's definitely a competitive advantage, but I am curious if you think the internet will move into three dimensions and you'll have to play in the virtual reality space at some point. Well, it's less expensive and it definitely has become less expensive, right? Um, I, think, I, think, I think so. I think that will definitely be, that will be part, that will have to be part of it. I mean, right now, like our kind of like interim solution is how do we like as students as collaborators, what you like, what can we do like, so rather than having them negotiate and buzz around, they're in breakout rooms and we come together to like make the moves in a game called Arctic where they're trying to figure out how to like maneuver in a world where like ice is melting and there's all sorts of trade negotiations, things that are happening. It's less exciting to do it online when everyone's kind of like watching the moves take place. I imagine virtual reality, that would be far more compelling. So, so yeah, I can, of course, I see that, see that piece you know, coming. I mean, for us, it's, I guess it is, you said kind of before we got onto this about like this idea of schools as daycare um, or, you know, schools having this component. And I feel like we've tried to decouple that as much as possible that we are like, we are going to be fully committed. And in the end, Astronova will be probably sixth through eighth. We don't feel like kids in third and fourth should be, you know, online as much as, or at least, I mean, kids are online all the time, but certainly like not um, on a video call at some level for like, you know, four or five or six hours a day. But we've kind of feel like a three-year accelerator program. Kids are like deeply immersed in like what they're learning. We get more creative around like what those experiences can look like and know that families, especially in a post-pandemic world or whatever, you know, are gonna be able to return to things and like those social connections that kids are making outside of school anyway. I mean, for me, it was always like the things about school that were memorable never took place in the classroom. So everything that happened outside of the classroom was memorable. It was like the sports or like the social interactions and everything else. So, you know, knowing that we are not going to be able to really replicate that in quite the same way, we just want to make sure that those academic experiences are powerful. And then we can like just work with families to figure out how to add that additional piece, which is of course hugely important. I never want to discount that. 
Josh, for the uh, pedagogy nerds in our audience, who are some of your influences? Are you guys influenced by project-based learning, constructivism? Like, what are some of the philosophies that are working behind the scenes for you guys? It's a great question. Um, you know, I would say like the, you know, Project Zero, like the Good Work Project at Harvard, we, we kind of, we talk to them, we kind of work with, you know, I wouldn't say we work together, but we certainly like bounce ideas off of one another. I mean, for me, it's, um, it's all about like, how can you create like a welcoming problem, right? Like a welcoming problem that builds a student's capacity to reason. Like that's like, that's the thing I'm always trying to like, kind of hack for is like, how can I design a game, if it's a game, that our youngest students who are eight can in 15 minutes understand the rules and the parameters of how the game works, at least like initially. And our oldest students can, you know, to do the same exact game. We can actually run these like games in parallel and you can see the development of the thinking across like eight or nine weeks. Like that to me is kind of like the golden standard of like what, what I'm trying to create is that experience where you are going to be able, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have space to reflect on those mistakes, but you're going to be put in a position of power and there's not, I'm just, I'm just designing these experiences based on like what kids are most interested in. I'm pretty content agnostic. I just try to create the structures that allow conflict and choice uh, interpersonally, uh, competitively and cooperatively. So, uh, so yeah, Project Zero, good work project. Um, obviously like project-based learning, like that there's a like huge component of that here. I try to think of like, from an online perspective like what are what are we what are classes like what classes are we doing that are traditional classes what are we doing that are like real experiences like it's experience based like your reflections on that experience are most powerful what is like collaborative based like where you're actually like whether you're working on the kind of like a corporate challenge or an institutional challenge where are you working with someone that's outside of our organization and then where are you working on like a team usually within you know sometimes just with students at astronaut but with other schools trying to solve like bigger problems so all of those things kind of, uh, you know, I, I think for us, like the structure of the school is fewer classes and more of the latter three, uh, three categories, I'd say. Sure. So a focus yeah. on the skills that uh, industry leaders are telling us that kids will actually need for the careers of tomorrow, right? I, I th yeah. And I, I guess maybe just, you know, from like something that I, I learned from Elon is like, you know, we can't get students to be able to make the kind of decisive engineering breakthrough that's needed on Starship at the age of 10, more likely than not, right? Like that's just very unlikely to happen. But what I think we can allow students to do is ask them these open-ended questions. Like, I mean, let's just say specific to Tesla and SpaceX. If I were to say to a student, like, how would you design the supercharger network for Brazil? And that like one sentence question, I would hope to develop the type of student that can move that question forward in some way, such that like after they spend some time thinking about it, they could like actually talk to the person who runs the supercharging like infrastructure for Tesla and they could have like actually a really rich conversation. And the, the idea behind this idea, you know, the idea behind this really was like, if we're going to be at SpaceX, how do we best utilize the resources that are there? And everyone is so wary of like internships, especially with kids this young or any sort of like collaborations. It just feels like you're just donating your time and you're not getting anything in return. So for me, it's like, well, what would it really take for students to kind of like answer these like high level questions, kind of from my first principles perspective. And like, there's, of course, you could look at the infrastructure of like how it's been done in the United States or other countries for the superchargers or, you know, anyway, all of these different things, like that's kind of like where I want students to be is like, because ultimately they're going to be doing this for their own lives, for their own problems that really fascinate them. 
So if I could find a way to get students deeply interested in solving problems and recognizing complexity and problems, even like ones that they probably will never spend any time of their lives solving, that that like appreciation of complexity and being drawn towards it is the thing that's going to like beget like, yeah, like the most effective types of people and the people that are happiest and are going to be able to find work uh, or create work that's going to be like most enlivening to them. So that's, that's kind of like the first principles approach of Astronova is like finding those experiences, building that capacity. And then that eventually by the time they're in eighth grade, I mean, we kind of think about like a great high school experiences by the time they get to their, you know, senior year, they're like, is what's the, like, what's the cost benefit analysis of actually going to college? I feel like I could like make a difference right now. I, I kind of want to make that even like younger. Not that these kids at 15 are going to start companies necessarily, sure. but they are going to high schools kind of knowing like what they hope to get out of it and what they hope to contribute rather than just put me on the path and I'll just go through it. And then hopefully it'll end in me, you know, heading to the next step. Ryan and I have had this great debate amongst each, amongst ourselves around the difference between teaching for genius and teaching for excellence. And part of what you're describing really resonates to this debate that we've had. Sure. Where do you think teaching for excellence still has relevance? You know, is there a trade-off? Is there is there a zero-sum game between this style of approach where you're saying, hey, our kids can go pro out of high school or they could even change the world at 15? to the kid that's in the, uh, in the audience that wants to be a neurosurgeon and needs to bring its, his, his or her skill set into a very kind of tight variance through a lot of practice? It's not zero sum, but, you know, yeah, and I don't, you know, and I, I don't, there's, an, I don't know enough, right, about like how, you know, like medical school, like the way that some of these like professional programs are structured in terms of time and like, the, you know, I, I would like to think that like medical professionals, professionals are like learning the lessons of, of the past, like that it's like this sort of, it's accruing knowledge, it's like more efficacious, all those sorts of things. And like, maybe that's just the time that's needed to do it. I just think that there are many things in the world where like the, you know, doing a six year PhD is probably not the best way to get that experience to be able to reflect on that experience and sort of like move move forward and at least for me right like i if like middle school is this sort of black hole at times of like what is done in schools this seems like the most important time in upper elementary as well to just really like immerse students in problems right. um and i think there's just a lot that we need to jettison in terms of like the you know like the like the progression of things that we learn um but, but in terms of your debate, I, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I could go either way on, on any given day, but at, like, at least this component of like what we're talking about, like is it an essential part of, of any education and should happen sooner rather than later and probably far, you know, far before um, upper elementary school. Longer term vision of the school, are you guys looking to grow numbers? Are you going to stay a particular size? Have you thought through, uh, you know, what the limits might be of, of being able to operate? online all in flux yeah i mean i, I think <clears throat> in our mind we're you know we're thinking you know 100 or fewer full-time students and then finding ways <clears throat> whether it's students that just come on fridays or students that come on saturdays for half a day just meet once a month like just a lot of flexible options so that students will have some connection to something like astronova which i think a lot of times ends up standing for something larger than what it actually is <clears throat> because people I think I'm really inspired by companies like SpaceX and they see that things are like changing, right? Like I think, and I think we'd like to say like changing for the better. 
And, uh, and not that corporations are always changing things for the better, but I feel like students are driven um, to see kind of that sense of possibility in action. And if Astronova can serve as that sort of sense of possibility in action and, you know, representing like what a school could be, um, despite all the advantages, I feel like that that's something that that's worth worth spreading and maybe scaling. But but even so, I think it will largely remain small. And what I'm more interested in is like students as collaborators, collaborating with other schools and institutions and like actually designing work that could be used in any classroom in the country or in the world. There's no reason that like conundrums couldn't be used as a transition activity in every elementary school in the country. Um, because ideally, like teachers are, you know, creating conundrums that are far better than the ones that we would create. But just even sometimes that like, you know, with teachers, like it's just sometimes that little spark of like, oh, oh, yeah, like I do something like this, like I'll just, you know, I just make a couple of modifications, like, and this is far better than what I would create. But like give kids five choices instead of two or one is kind of like the simple way to say that. Building off of that, can you talk to, to the folks, to our listeners who who are too embarrassed to admit they don't understand what a conundrum might be? What's the anatomy of a conundrum in the context of Astronova? What is it? What makes a great conundrum? Mm, so I guess I should maybe just quick, I'll talk through like a quick example here. So um, okay, here's one of my favorite examples. This is called the, the neighbor conundrum. So imagine two countries and in, we're going to call the first country the home country. And in the home country, there's this animal called the Novaru. It's, uh, it's an endangered, it's an endangered animal. Uh, it's protected by the country and it's actually celebrated. It's on their currency. They sing about it in the national anthem. It is like the, the emblem of their country. Well, their neighboring country sees, of course, you know, has known this for, you know, a long time that this is sort of the most important uh, symbol of the country. So what they start to do is they start to plant uh, the tree that the Novaru eats just across the border from the home country and start to plant the trees in such a way that it kind of leads them deeper into the interior of the country. So suddenly, kind of like overnight, the entire, the only existing uh, a band of Novarus has now moved into the neighboring country. And they now live there in these lush forests that took many years to grow, but strategically the neighboring country planned this and has executed on this. The question basically is like, what should happen next? Like, should the Novarus be returned to the home country? Or should they stay um, in the neighboring country? So uh, this is an example where there are just two options, right? But so you're giving like that short narrative. You didn't know what an over was before I started talking about it. And now, of course, there are all kinds of connections you can make to like the world and how it exists. But then even talking about returning the Nova is like, what would, what would that take? Is that a violation of sovereignty? Like, what do the Novaroos really want? What are kind of the interests and motivations behind all the actors in this sort of question? So a question like this, um, I feel like, in, you know, certainly elementary school and, and even middle school, and honestly, adults, frankly, too, you can watch this, you could really disagree with with like-minded people or people that feel totally different than you that you could agree with. And uh, and that's how kind of I think of conundrums, a possibility of just engaging in a conversation around something that is is fictional, but echoes the world that we live in. That's fantastic. You know, you're really going to the heart of another conversation that we've had about the difference between quote unquote, real world and real work. So a lot of times, you know, we will take a word problem in math class, for instance, and we'll, you know, throw in some real world examples of, you know, oh, Johnny started a business or, oh, Johnny became a medical doctor and performed X number of surgeries. And really we've just given them the same exact math problem, the same sort of routine steps to follow, uh, the same sort of recipe to follow even, but we've, you know, spiced it up with some real world language. 
Whereas with the Novaroos, it sounds like, you know, obviously a fictional example, but there's real work going on. The students have to actually think through the problem and come up with the steps to a solution themselves rather than following a recipe. That's right. And then, yeah, and as I mentioned, you know, <clears throat> a little earlier, like if there, the question is welcoming, you know, it's, right. it's not, you know, I, I try to keep like death and destruction and despair out of these um, as much as possible, but, but really like, but you know, yeah, there are parables to climate change. There are all sorts of things like this is of course, like sure. relates to China and the great Panda, right? Like there are all these things that are kind of connected, but it, it gives you a, a welcoming uh, entry point. You can pick one of the two options and even if you're not totally sure, like you could pick an option, but then like listen to what other people have to say and that's important. You can have students, you know, when I would do it in a class, what I would do is like, I would collect the data and then we'd just like talk about the data. Like let's not get into like what everyone thinks, like let's just talk about like, what do we notice about our class? Um, what do we think our class would feel versus like other classes? What would make one group of students feel differently than others and that sort of thing. So. Um, and, and other options, there's usually there's usually like three, four, five, or even six options. But this is one where it's it feels like there's really just two. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's that to me is like and like what why does Astronova exist? Like what's the purpose of it? Because in my mind, if we're not creating content that can be shared, then there's really no purpose in a school like this existing. So this is just a kind of humble example of like one way to frame a question that could be a do now activity. You can build a lesson around it. You can build an entire class around it, but it's getting students uh, to engage in these questions that are welcoming and then ultimately give them the power to make the decision. And then, you know, that, that, that power is respected and the teacher's power to make their own decision. Like that's respected as well, but it's no more important than the way the students reasoning through the problem. Kind so of for, for our listeners who are a little bit more entrepreneurial and, and excited to learn more about what you're doing with synthesis um, and how does how do you see the vision of synthesis expanding in this in this kind of post covid or covid world um, what what's what's the true north there and and where do you see um, astronova kind of complementing that work yeah so so synthesis the company is um, I started it with someone that I met at Class Dojo creating the conundrums. And the idea is basically to scale the synthesis experience so that every student in the world would have the ability to spend an hour a week at least going through synthesis-like um, challenges, essentially. The synthesis challenges um, are a bit different than the conundrum challenges, though they overlap. The synthesis challenges tend to be more game-based, which of course for students is like so natural for them to be playing like games and really just bringing kids together from around the world. Right. and throwing them into like a complex scenario and having them like reason through like how it works and then changing the parameters on them constantly, right? It's like managing the kind of the chaos of the, of the situation and doing it in a team. So there's always cooperative and competitive elements. The first game is called Constellation. The second game is called Art for All, which is a game that I designed a couple of years ago in, at Astra. And the game basically is you're curating uh, an exhibition of art um, and you're taking it around the world and you're trying to, to drive attendance and profit, but also put together a coherent collection that like kind of speaks to kind of like a higher coherence. Um, I don't know, we're calling this beauty right now, but it's that students as they're managing the different auctions and competing with teams and negotiating different works of art and thinking about the cities and the markets and testing the elasticity of that market. But like students can actually make these decisions at a really young age. You just create, again, a welcoming problem. Here are like the 50 works of art that are gonna come up for auction. 
you know what order some of them will come and others you don't know. There are different categories and different bonuses that are affiliated. Obviously there's lots of math involved, but you try to like take the math. It's more of this that the reasoning, right? The math, you can do the math. We try to downplay that a little bit so that you can make decisions, you know, pretty quickly. And then you go through, you know, let's say like two hours of this, and then you just like stop and reflect, talk about the decisions, the tension points, the emotions of it all, how you felt, and then change some of the parameters, change some of the weights, and then like we do it all over again. So that's synthesis. Like that's what synthesis, that's the future of synthesis is leveraging technology to actually like bring the kind of challenges that are designed with Illustrator and PDFs um, and, and bringing them, you know, to more kids through technology. I'll continue to teach synthesis at Astronova and then just, you know, continue to tinker and design games. And then those that, you know, best illustrate high level concepts like tragedy of the commons or, um, you know, prisoner's dilemma, those sorts of things like we'll make into games through synthesis, the company. Very, very cool. Cool. Where do you see, uh, both Astronova and synthesis in the next 10 years? I, I would say there's a 50% chance that they both exist in 10 years each, uh -huh. maybe, maybe less. I, I mean, I think like, we're kind of maniacal around like designing each year new for each group of students. And if it's, you know, if it's not, if it's the, if we're not accelerating in sort of the changes that we're making in the evolution, then I'm not interested in doing it. So I think whatever we have now will look wildly different in two years, if not even next year. And I think that that's kind of that, that challenged me. It's I feel like when I meet with it, my colleagues, it's like, I, I feel a creative responsibility that every time we meet that like, we thought that like this was kind of the frontier. We thought this was the next step. It's like, that's not even like, no, the next step is, is that. And that next step must be giving this experience to students that otherwise would never have this chance, right? Like we need to, to move to a place where we are only serving students where this is like transformational for them. If your backup option is like your local independent school and like that's where you are, then like, it's, it's not that well, every kid deserve an amazing education. I just, I feel like, sure. Not the best use of, of my time and energy, ultimately. Sure, that makes sense. Josh, maybe this is serendipitous. I'm in rural Mississippi, and, and my uh, buddy Ryan is going to be working in uh, the Nuba Mountain region in Africa. And you're talking about geographies that need transformation, man. <laughs> Just let me know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, there, there's a limit, you know. Yeah, to on, resources and... And all those there are limits of like what you know what our small school and the questions that we create and like how relevant they are but like i think again like the school can stand for something larger because of its affiliation with elon and spacex because of like my like just incredible like blessing that i was given to have this opportunity like was pro and honestly like undeserved like i was you know i did teach for america i taught at the school called Mormon school for gifted children i just got really lucky right and like really lucky and got the benefit of the doubt when i shouldn't have had it and i got so basically create a school from scratch for like one of the most innovative people on the face of the earth in the shadow of like a rocket company and whatever lessons are gleaned, whatever like things that we've designed, like humbly, we are just saying like, this is stuff that we find to be really effective with our students. And if it's helpful, we'd love for you to use it. If it's not helpful, then like, then, then don't use it. Uh, that's, I mean, that's kind of like where, where I'm at. And if there's any, you know, what, you know, there's, I just, sometimes it's like those little epiphanies, right? That can like be so powerful um, as a teacher when you're like, when you just see something different it just shifts your mindset. You add like the linear sort of progression and you're like, what are, from a first principles perspective, why are we getting all these kids together of a similar age? Like, what are we trying to do, right? right? And 
if what we're really trying to do is like build capacity to reason and make choices and like create a better world than the one in which we live, then like maybe we wouldn't be doing, you know, what the court of a circle is, or maybe we wouldn't be doing, you know, main idea for the eighth year in a row. These right. things are important, of course, there's a time and place for them, but like there must be a more exhilarating part of a child's day in school. Amen. Agreed. You have this incredible story, this incredible testimony that you began to get into. Um, just, you know, you were at a gifted school and this need was, was you know, there was this, the, this magic moment where this thing was going to get born. Can you talk a little bit about how you and Elon envisioned this? Did you approach Elon? Did he approach you? How did this thing get started? How was it born? I think just Elon's dissatisfaction with, you know, the, the standard independent schools in the city and just as someone that like doesn't suffer, uh, you know, if quality is suffering, it's like he just wants to create something. So I was the teacher that he knew because I was teaching one of his kids and he, you know, asked me to come to SpaceX and basically said like, hey, you know, what do you think about the school, you know, that you're teaching at that my kids are at? I told him the truth. He said, all right, well, like, well, let's just create something, you know, better. Like, what do you think about that? So of course I like, it's like, well, I want you to think about it. And I was like, okay. Like, so I thought about it for like, you know, four hours and wrote him an email like three in the morning. It was like, all right, like, here's exactly how we should do it. Here's what it should look like. And I didn't hear back. So this was in like late November or mid November of 2013. I didn't hear back until like late January, 2014. So for those two months, I convinced myself that I like had made it all up that like, Sure. I don't know. I messed up somehow in this like kind of conversation that there was really no future here. And then as Elon does is like, Oh, sorry. I was like super busy. Things got crazy. Um, yeah. Like let's, let's figure this out and make it happen. So it really just started with like, you know, his kids and a few others started at SpaceX and just added kids every year and try to convince people that actually was a school and not just like a, I don't know, a homeschool share or something like that. Right. And then I mean, really ever since then just like trying every year to kind of like bootstrap it a little bit more and make it more real and and share it as much as possible and be really honest about like what is sort of a product of resource and what's the product of of actual ingenuity and uh and even so like we're you know now we're like kind of this small startup school and even just thinking about like how to structure it it's difficult right it's like you would think like like it will be like a not-for-profit because like that's what other schools do but i don't want to be relying on wealthy people to be writing checks to like satisfy kind of the things that they're hoping to do. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to doing a teacher own school because I, I trust the team's ability to not sacrifice the ultimate vision. And like, we'll take less in salary if like it ultimately means, you know, sharing this work with more people. Um, but, but, but we'll see. Yeah. There's that, that's the Genesis. And now the future is really unknown. That's, ex that's exciting. So to, to talk about the supply side of the equation, you got to have some really courageous people who buy into this. What's the anatomy? What's the makeup of the, of the ideal uh, Astronova faculty member? <laughs> Someone who is maniacal around improvement um, and is able yeah, I guess it's just that that really nice interplay between getting in the weeds, but then like big picture and like being able to toggle between those like really quickly. Like, let's talk about like this specific word on our application. Is this like, are we, is our application accessible to like just about any parent or student that were to come across? It? I mean, we have a thing where we have like a lot of students that apply on their own. So we'll end up with like, you know, a bunch of applications from 15 year olds who are a little too old for the school who have like, 
heard about the school on TikTok or whatever, and like, we'll just apply. So like for us, like that's actually, even though the students are a little bit old, like that's a good signal that like the process should be really open. It should feel like they have the ability to kind of just like do it on their own. Right. So to be able to do that, but then also to be able to think about like, well, like what really, like if we're going to think about science at Astronova, it's not just that you can have an online class that's neuroscience and kids will be drawn to it because like there are plenty of places to take a free neuroscience class from like world-class faculty. That can't be the future of education is just like high level classes. It must be experience-based like it like or like the work that we're working on together like you know with a group of students that are writing conundrums like we're we're sharing in the vulnerability of what we're doing together and i think that students really respond to that vulnerability when a school is able to say that like we don't know what the outcome of this is but we think that like this is grounded in something that's important so like let's figure out how to make it best and teachers that are able to do that or not like it's hard to find, frankly, and uh, I've been really fortunate to have three amazing colleagues who have been with me, you know, for the last four or five years. Wow, that's tremendous. Well, we're, it's time for the Furious Five. Josh, we, yeah, we like to end uh, our podcast with a segment that we call the Furious Five, which is just five rapid fire questions that don't necessarily have anything to do with what we've been talking about today. They're just kind of fun, get to know you sort of questions. Um, we encourage rapid fire, like one or two sentence answers. We might follow up a little bit, but uh, we'll start things off with a really easy one. What's the best movie or TV show that you've watched recently? Uh, Mandalorian. Oh, amen. Crowd favorite. Amen. My nine-year-old son and I have been watching that together. We absolutely love it. What's yeah. the best meal that you've eaten recently? Ooh. Um, let's see. Uh, Greek salad, homemade. Ooh, nice. 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 Huge fan of Greek food myself. Um, what is uh, the best book that you have ever read about education? Best book ever about education, I would say, oh boy. I'm just gonna think about be, sort of best best book. I think all of it's sort yeah. of related. The, the best book about education you know, is probably this this book about, from, actually from Howard Gardner, about like the five minds of the future or something like that. And he talked about the synthesizing mind. And that was like a big inspiration for designing synthesis class, the synthesizing mind. I really like that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Who's, who's a thought leader that our listeners should stop what they're doing and either go follow on social media or read a book by or watch an interview with? Who's a, who's a thought leader that everyone in our audience needs to be aware of right now? Oh man, I'm not, I'm not good at answering these sorts of questions. This is That's like, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, uh, in turn, yeah, I'm, um, okay. In terms of thought leaders that you should read right now, I mean, Ibram, you know, Ibram X Kendi, right? Like his work, of course, like how to be an anti-racist and, uh, you know, um, stand for the beginning. Those two things are like, if you haven't read those, it's a, you have to. Absolutely. We're, we're big fans. The last of the Furious Five questions is we like to call it the contrarian question. It's really Adam's question, so I'll let him ask it. Okay. What is the thing that you have learned about online school that many of your counterparts who are trying online school would disagree with you on? Great question. Um, they would disagree. That you know to be true. Yeah, I know to be true. I know to be true that like, well, I don't think I'm going to disagree with this thing. It probably would say that it's hard to produce. It's just like how to create insane amounts of novelty in an experience that can be awfully dull, right? Like, sure. 
We, we play mini games that I'm literally drawing up four minutes before it starts because like I know that a mini game to end the day after shout outs could be like the thing that makes a kid smile. That might be the only thing that day that will happen on an online in an online school. So how do we be maniacal around novelty and, uh, and serendipity and it kind of like when serendipity is really hard to come by? I think that that's that's a thing. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for your time today. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, I'm not on social media, but um, definitely astronova.org uh, was the place to go to see the school. And then um, and synthesis.is for synthesis um, as a company. Fantastic. So for, for those who are just wanting to be helpful uh, from afar and wanting to cheer you on because we believe in the story and, and what you're trying to accomplish, how can people, average folks from around the country, help you even if they may not have children that will come to your school? Um, reach out to me, Josh at astronova.org. I'd be happy to, to talk and figure out how I can, you know, hopefully make something happen. I'm really honored to be on this podcast. I really appreciate your time, everyone. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Josh. Dude, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Uh-huh.